morning. Good morning. <laughs> okay, so this is going to pain Andy, but I am not a very big person on statistics. Like, it just doesn't do anything for me. Like, it, some of them I find interesting, but for the most part, like, okay, cool. But today, as I was just kind of looking around, not necessarily even preparing for this sermon, but I read some, some statistics that I think are interesting when talking about today. So a lot of people have heard of the good old Barna group and a lot of the statistics that they've done. Um, I thought some of these were really interesting. So and this is from 2014. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many professing, professing Christians cannot identify more than two or three disciples. 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. I went through quizzing myself on these this morning. 82% of Americans, this is scary, believe that the verse, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. It's not. 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. A survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were a husband and wife. A high number of respondents to one poll said that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. That's relevant to today. Um, one Bible professor made a note on the survey that said that one of his freshmen said that Joshua, the son of Nun, was born to a nun. And something it said was to ask, what's your favorite, favorite Bible verse on this poll? Can anyone take a wild guess as to what verse it was? No. John 3.16. So like the verse that most people, even non-Christians who... They might not know what it is, but they would probably say John 3.16, just because they've seen it everywhere. They've seen it on football players' eye black. They've seen it all over the place. Like driving down the interstate, sometimes you see billboards that say John 3.16, because that's kind of like the verse that's out there so much. But as I was thinking about favorite verses applying to today, I think that a verse that we're going to talk about today, if given a list of options to choose from, I bet that a lot of Christians and non-Christians would choose Matthew 7.1 as their favorite verse. It says, Matthew 7.1 says, oh, I'm on the wrong page. Judge not that you be not judged. Isn't that kind of what like, our culture screams? They, the church says it, that we say it of, like non-Christians you hear, turn this around and tell it to the church. Hey, don't judge us. This says, do not judge. And I think that's I, a couple weeks ago, probably over a month ago now, um, talked about we live in a world that says what's right for me is right for me, what's right for you is right for you, don't tell me otherwise, we're going to live that way, it's all going to be good and gravy. And I don't necessarily think that's what the Bible teaches. So this morning we're in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Um, like it's happened to me three times in a row, I think, yesterday sermon completely changed. Like, cut out half of it. And then elaborated on the first half. It's like, it keeps happening to me. I keep saying, no, I'm going to get it right the first time. And then God says, just trust me. I'm going to do something. So, um, before we go, though, um, I, I know Tanner already prayed, but I hope you're going to allow me to pray again um, before we get into this. Is that all right? 
Father God, we just thank you so much. Just thank you for, I say this often, but just for being God, for being a God that we can trust, a God that, that we can say is, is in control, a God that we can just trust to provide for our daily needs, just like what Tanner talked about last week. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a room full of kids over there that have, maybe it's their, some of some, for some it's their first time here, for some it's not. But Father God, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here, to be in a location that you have placed us, to be able to tell others about how good you are. Um, maybe people that have never heard it before, kids, adults, whoever it may be. Father, we just praise you for how good you are. Praise you that, that you don't leave it all up to us, Father, that you've taken this, that you've made this from the very beginning to be exactly what you want it to be. And I just thank you for that. I just, this morning, I just ask that, that you would lead us, that you would just open our hearts, that you would do all the moving, you do the working, Father, that you would show us more and more and more that, that the more we try to work, the, the less and less that we realize we can actually do. Father, change us, mold us. Just reveal to us exactly what we need to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go ahead and read um, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, Something kind of different about these verses is Matthew 6 that Tanner preached, um, made it, he made it all the way through an entire chapter by himself. It was incredible. But the Matthew 6 is very much about personal temptations. Temptations that were like very personal. Fasting, giving, praying, worry, anxiety, uh, money or financial temptations. A lot of that is very personal. And then in Matthew 7... Same sermon, but Jesus kind of starts to, to steer a different direction, just a little bit. He's talking more of like interpersonal relations, because what we're going to talk about today and next week and kind of for the next couple will be very important in interactions with other people, Christians, non-Christians, but it's very much like it has direct correlation here. And I think both types of temptations are equally dangerous. Um, but I think there's something for me at least, and you can argue with me about this later, but I think these are a little more scary because they involve other people. They involve our interactions against other people. They involve our Christian witness to non-believers and to other Christians because it's directly on how we relate to other people. So the, the, the chapter opens up. Judge not that you be not judged. Seems pretty straightforward. I mean, no questions asked. Okay, we're done. Sloppy Joe's. Like, that is, if there's application to this, everyone say, this is it. Judge not that you be not judged. That's a pretty simple, simple application, right? Unfortunately, 
or fortunately, I guess it depends how you want to look at it, Jesus elaborates a little bit and says, okay, I said this, but now let me tell you exactly what I'm referring to. So what do, when you hear the word judge, what do you normally think of? The word, just the word judge. The guy in a black robe. We took our clients to see God's Not Dead 2 this week, and half of that movie is in a courtroom. And you got the guy with the hammer. Or the, is it gavel? Is that the right word? Gavel, hammer, whatever you want to call it. Oh, that's the word judge. You see, the, you see the word judge used multiple times in the Bible for many different things. You see it used for a judicial judge type of thing. You see it used more of like going through like the New Testament and the things about the end times. You see it used as the judge, like a bestowal or giving of a reward. You see it used to, to mean like define or you've judged correctly. In Luke 7, you see Jesus talking, about, talking to a Pharisee and he asks him a question. The Pharisee responds and Jesus says, you judge correctly. So like it's a positive thing. You decided correctly. You discerned correctly. But here the word does not seem so positive. Like what I, what I looked up, what I, what I kind of found was that it was like, it's your judgment of someone's guiltiness before God because of a sin. Like, you're saying this person is guilty and deserves the punishment. Like, that is the word for judge that he's using. Like, the actual Greek word that he used, I looked up my nice little big book that helps go to Greek that I've referenced before, but it says to condemn, to punish, to decide, to avenge, to conclude, to decree, to sentence, most of those are not very positive uses of this word. Like, most of that is stuff that you're like, well, I don't have the authority to do that. Like, that's not for me to do. And that's exactly what he's saying. It's like, don't declare anyone else's guilty before God. Like, that's God's job. Romans says that. I think, I forget what chapter it is in Romans. But he says, God is judge. 13, maybe? Um, God is judge, and God is judge alone. Do you, do you do this, though? Here we're talking non-Christians and Christians. Do you look at people and say, wow, look at that sin in their life. That's awful. They're a horrible person. They need Jesus. But they're awful. Look at how, look how big their sin is. Or what about you look at other Christians and you see the sin in the life of, of a professing Christian and you kind of unintentionally or intentionally say, wow, they're, kind of, they're almost a lesser Christian because they still have all this sin in their life. I think that often we do this on accident and on purpose. Like a lot of times it doesn't actually come to words we say, but in our hearts we do that. I want to take a step back. and this first, These first five verses, you notice that, remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is preaching to those who are desiring to follow him. These people are saying, like, we want to follow you. A lot will end up turning away, but these are not Pharisees. These are not people that are against him. These are people who are initially at least desiring to follow him. And these five verses, Jesus is talking to them about their relationships with other believers. Like you say, if your brother sins against you, he's not talking about the guy across the street. He's not talking about the stranger He's talking, I think a lot of this applies in both scenarios, but it seems like he's talking to 
the church about the church. Verse 2. I don't know that we necessarily hear this the same way that a lot of Jesus' hearers would have heard this. So verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A lot of us are like, okay, I get what that's saying. I don't think it quite applies, or it doesn't, we don't hear that the same way that Jesus' followers would have heard that. Because in their day, the measure you use would have hit home right away. Because everything that you go and buy, the goods, food, whatever it, whatever it be, would have been measured on a scale. Well, I always picture, I don't know if this is right or not, but there's that T scale with the chains and little plates hanging down that, that go up and down. Like That's what I picture in my head. If that's what it was, I don't know. But if you wanted to do to rip someone off, what you do is you just make your scales a little off. Maybe your plate weighs a little more or weighs a little less, and you throw this off. In China, like when I was there, a lot of street merchants still use something similar. Like they sell pecans or cherries or oranges, things that are small enough, they will have a little scale. But so what they would do is those the unfair businessmen would just throw that off a little, or a lot, I guess, depending on how brave you want to be. But in terms of judgment, what, what Jesus is talking about, I think this is a very, very, very scary thing. Like, if the measures are not fair, if the measures are not equal. Because a couple weeks ago, I was, I was up here, and I kept doing this. Like, you've got the, the sins that was self-made, like, righteousness scale that we make up. We say, like, oh, there's big sins up here. Oh, you got murder. You've got rape. You've got adultery. You've got all these things that are up, up here. And then you've got the, the not-so-bad sins that are down here. And then you've got the lies, the little, maybe, the anger in your heart. You've got the less, lesser sins. And I think what we do sometimes is we put our sin on here and then look at others through that self-made scale. Like, I was trying to think of a good example that I, like, by the grace of God, in the situation that I am in, I feel like the, the temptation to, to steal is not something that I actively struggle on a daily basis fighting. I, I can remember back, I've debated whether to say this or not because I know my mom's going to listen to this, but like back when I was probably 9 or 10, taking a pack of baseball cards from Walmart and just sticking it in my pocket, I know, lightning bolt coming, um, but... Like, I can remember it feeling so guilty over that. And my mom just found out for the first time when she hears this. But, but like, that is not something that I currently struggle with. It's not, I don't walk through and tempted to, what can I take that's not mine? Totally a God thing, but that's not something I struggle with. So what's easy to do is to judge someone who does that differently than I would judge my sin. So what I do is, like, on that scale... Obviously, stealing is going to weigh heavier than my lying or my anything that I do struggle with. Anything that is mine every week, every anything that is mine is going to weigh less in my own self-made righteousness scale. So you see, like that's not how it's supposed to work. Like all these sins that you put here, I don't think I have to describe it again. But like all of them are here. Like, there's no scale. Like, because of who it's sinning against, because it's sinning against a holy God, like, everything that we mentioned, and I'm going to throw out some things later, 
like all of them are to the highest degree, the highest degree of severity because of who you're sinning against. I don't think we often look at others, no matter what their sin, and realize that their sin is the same magnitude as ours. I've thought about it a lot this week, and you're not going to run into someone in here, out there, there's no one you're going to run, going to run into that has a worse sin than you. Like, I'll say that again. Like, you're not going to find someone that has a worse sin than you. And I think that's something that's difficult to realize. It's difficult to accept. Because, obviously, that guy who kills someone has done worse than I have. Right? Like, that's natural, almost, to think. That he's worse. He's a worse guy. His sin, that, that weighs more. Because I haven't killed somebody. And I think that's the danger that we kind of fall into without realizing that we all stand condemned before the same God. Like, for the exact same thing, sinning against a holy God, disobeying God. Like, the same thing. It doesn't matter how that plays out, what sin that expresses itself in. It's the same thing. And I think there's an Old Testament story that, that displays, that explains this Matthew 7 so, so well. Um, who it, I'm going to tell a story of the, the, possibly the Bible's biggest hypocrite. Does anybody have any idea who it is? Throw out some guesses. Who? Big hypocrites, yes. Not what I'm thinking. Oh, jackpot. David. King David, the man described as being after God's own heart. So, I know most of you probably know this story, but I'm going to kind of give like a 30-second version of David and Bathsheba. So you've got David, king, great a guy, pretty good track record, up on top of his palace, sees a woman bathing, and unable to control himself, he says, I want her, servants go and get her. He had the authority to do so. So I'm going to skip some details. She ends up pregnant, has a kid. Tanner probably would not have skipped the details. But, so, to cover it up, realizing this man, or this woman, is someone else's husband. And so what does he do? He's like, okay, I'm going to send, I'm skipping some stuff, I'm going to send her husband to the front lines of battle and have him killed. Basically. I'm going to send him out to be killed. By the, by the opponents, but he's going to die. Then he took her as his wife, in his mind, everything is good and gravy. You don't really, you don't hear much in between. From our perspective reading this, you're like, oh my goodness. Like, that's messed up. And so, God is so gracious to send David a guy named Nathan. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So, David just committing all of this, and then he has this guy come named Nathan. Starting in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. 
It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to a rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or her to prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he has no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Whoa. At the core of it, Nathan comes to David and says, you're a huge hypocrite. Like, what you have done is so much greater than this man that you said was to die. What you have done doesn't compare to that. He went and killed an animal. You've killed a man. You've stolen his wife. Like, there's no comparison between the two. In terms of Matthew 7, David's going around pointing out specks with a big log in his eye. Because he is the man. He is guilty of sin that has not been addressed. Like, this is exactly what Jesus is warning about in Matthew 7. Like, don't do this. Like, David just got made an example of. And Jesus is saying, don't do this. I'm thinking, like, would it have been biblical should David have addressed the man who stole the lamb. Yeah. He's king. He should have addressed that. Did he have the authority to do so? Yes. But due to the sin in his life, he could not. Like, because of the sin in his life, he could not accurately see the sin in someone else's life. Because his own sin was so great. Like, God wanted David to be broken, to be humbled, to repent of his own sin, to allow God to change him before he went to this man, before he addressed that. You see, you see David's, it's probably one of my favorite psalms, honestly, is Psalm 51. Like, you see David's response. And we're, I'm going to read a lot of 51 here in a little bit. But you see David come before God and be broken, completely broken, and saying, God, I need you. I've sinned against you. There's nothing I can do. I need a clean heart. But I think in this topic of Matthew 7, seeing our own sin correctly is probably the biggest thing. Because I was going to go through a whole number of verses about our sin. God, what God says about how awful our sin is. And could have listed off multitudes. But flip to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Oh, I didn't mark it on the spot here. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. says, Or do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you'll notice that there's no ranking system in these verses of the sin that's in our lives. There's no ranking system. Like, look at all those things. They're all, they're all here on that scale. Like, idolatry is on the same line as stealing. Adultery is on the same line as the drunkards. The greed is on the same level of the, asexual, of the sexually immoral. So, like, there's no judgment of good sin, bad sin. Like, he's very clear about our sin. And I think we need to keep this in mind before we go any further in Matthew 7. Specifically in these five verses. And I realize I've spent half the time describing that part. But I think it's so important that we see our own sin in perspective before you even think about someone else's. Okay. Matthew 7. Back to Matthew 7. I'm going to read chapters, or verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Taken very literally, this makes absolute sense, right? Like, we're talking as literal as we can. As literal as we can. If I see a speck in Michael's eye, and I'm going to say, okay, I want to take out that speck, but I've got, literal, a log in my eye, I'm not going to be able to get close enough to Michael to touch his speck. Like, if I've got a log here, I'm not going to be able to look at the speck in his eye. I'm not going to be able to see it. At the most literal example, we're all like, yeah, obviously, that makes sense. Log, little speck in his eye. But going deeper than that, I think looking at what does a speck mean? What is a speck? And I looked at some ways that other versions of the Bible translate it. And sawdust, splinter. Um, it says that the, the word could have been small twig. Whatever it be. But I think the point is, the fact that it's in your eye, even a speck you want out. If you've got a splinter in your eye, it's, you're going to get it out before you do anything else. Like, it's important. Very small in comparison to a log, but not insignificant. When I was sophomore year of high school, I remember this all too clearly. We had our youth group down before Sunday night church in the basement of our church. Bean bags, very tie-dye-ish walls, sponge, like very high school youth room-esque. And being the attentive churchgoer that I was, I was dozing off a little bit during youth group. Um, in my bean bag, kind of in the corner. And the pastor's wife, who was feisty to say the least, decided to wake me up by throwing a pencil at me. She had impeccable aim, and it hit me right in the side of the eye. 
Like, within a split second, it was like, I felt like my eye was the size of a softball. Like, couldn't see, it was black, freaking out, like, the pain, but freaking out because I couldn't see. And over the next, like, hour or two, like, we stayed for church, like, the vision kind of started to come back, fuzzy, but my eye still felt the size of a golf ball. Eye doctor the next day, whatever. Contacts, I don't know where that contact went, but... I had to go to the eye doctor, and he pulled out like three or four pieces of graphite out of my eye and left in some because he said, to get that, I'm going to have to cut. He went in with like awful experience, awful. Graphite, small pieces were left in my eye, very small pieces. A couple of years ago, I went to the eye doctor, and he could still see it. He said, it's, there's no reason to worry. It's just going to dissolve eventually. But very small piece... In my eyes, that was extremely significant. I wanted it out as soon as possible. And I, I was in driver's ed at school at the time, and I couldn't even drive for like two days because of this stupid pencil. Very scarring memory in my life. Like, oh, this is bad. But my, 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 my point being, like, no matter what the size, it's in our eye, it's significant. Like, it can be a splinter, it can be a speck, Jesus is not saying to ignore the speck. He's saying it's significant. Whatever that be, whatever sin that is, is significant and needs to be addressed. But the warning here is to the addresser, the person who might be walking around with a log. I don't have a good story for that one, sorry. But a log in your eye. And I'm thinking of it like a very realistic Big example, I guess. Try to make this very clear. Like, what Jesus is warning against is someone who is actively engaged in an alcohol addiction. Someone who's actively engaged in this, the, this addiction is consuming them, they're probably not the one to go and talk to someone who got drunk the night before. They've got their own sin in their life. They've got their own thing they absolutely have to deal with. What about someone who's actively consumed by pornography addiction? Someone who this is consuming their life. They're probably not the ones that are going to be going to someone about an inappropriate sexual joke that was just told. I'm going to say this a couple times, but don't feel like, don't hear that I'm saying that you have to be sinless to address sin in someone's life. That's not what I'm saying, and I'm hopefully going to make that very clear. But Jesus going again, he's saying, this, the log in your eye, the sin in your eye, the sin in your life, in your heart, has to be addressed, has to be taken before God before you need to say anything to anyone else. And this basically kind of seems to be the, de- the biblical definition, at least, of a hypocrite. Like, pointing out the sins of another, judging the sins of another, while ignoring the sins in your own life. Like, at the basis of it, that's what he was calling the Pharisees. He warned the Pharisees a couple times about, why are you looking at the, that person over there picking a head of grain on the Sabbath? Look at yourself. They, they were judging that while ignoring the, the hypo- their own hypocrisy, their own pride, their own greed, their own diso- disobedience of God's commands. But now what he's saying, he's warning this to believers. He's saying that you guys are desiring to follow me well, don't do this or you're in the same boat. He says, if you do this, you are hypocrites. So he's talking about addressing your own sin. 
getting a proper view of your own sin. But this last part in verse 5, I think is something that the church, global church, non-Christians, like, we don't like this last part. I'm going to read verse 5 again. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Wait, does that mean that you're pointing out the speck in someone else's eye? Does that mean that once the log is out of your own eye, you're supposed to point out the sin in someone else's life? Yeah. Most of us don't like that idea. Sounds awful. Sounds awful. But here's the thing. Like, we're called to be discerning, to be wise, but we're called to deal with our own sin, so then after that we can go and be used to help bring someone else back to God. But it has to be that order. And that's the biggest thing. It has to be that order. We have to deal with our own sin first before we can even think about going to someone else. Listen to this. This is a quote from John MacArthur. He says, When our own sin is cleansed, when the log is taken out of our own eye, then we will see our brother's sin clearly and be able to help him. Then we will see everything clearly. God, ourselves, others. We will see God as the only judge. Others as needy sinners who are just like ourselves. We will see our brothers as a brother on our own level and with our own frailties and needs. Another guy said, we must seek God to bring forgiveness and spiritual healing to us before we can in any way even know what is wrong with others. I think this is the point. Like, we have to beg God to change us. Like, I feel like the focus is on us in this. But then he says, as I change you, as I grow you, as I sanctify you, you're going to be able to go to others. You're going to be able to disciple others. You're going to be able to go to others and say, allow me to help you. I see this in your life. And I, I would say that it's the responsibility of the church to do so. I say, by not doing so, is a lot more like hate than it is love. Like If you really love someone, you want the absolute best for someone. If you absolutely love someone, you want to, to take and see something in their life that is unbiblical, not something that you don't like. We're not talking about things that's not your preference. We're not talking about things that, that annoy you. We're talking about things that don't line up with the Bible. But, but I want you to listen. I'm going to read off a couple of verses. You don't have to turn there, but jot, jot these down. But here's the thing. These verses are about rebuking others are about calling out the sins of others to bring them back. But here's what I want you to do. I think what we often do is we read these in the context of the one as you're going to be the rebuke. You're going to rebuke someone. You're going to bring someone back. But I want you to try to do is to, to read these verses thinking if you are the offender. If you're the one who's committed the sin and needs rebuking, if you're the one that needs brought back, to try to listen to these verses in that way. I was going to try to rewrite them in term like, but I was like, I probably shouldn't do that. Um, but read these as like you are the one that has committed the sin. The first one is Galatians 6, 1 through 2. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in, in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5, 19-20 My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Luke 17, 3 Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if they continue in their sin, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Those are terrifying. Like, absolutely terrifying. Like, for both parties involved, I feel like, but more so if you're the one who needs the rebuke, which whether or not you see it, those are terrifying. But Christians don't like hearing this. I don't think, I, didn't, I don't like hearing this. Like, so often we want to talk about the love. We want to talk about the all-inclusive love, the, the grace. We want to talk about the compromise, the unity. But we don't want to talk about the difficult stuff. We don't want to talk about anything confrontational. We want to talk about just 100% encouragement. That's what the church is for. And I, w- I want to make sure we get this, like, absolutely, the church is supposed to be encouraging. The church is supposed to be full of love, full of, full of drawing people closer to God. But there has to be this. As you have dealt with your own sin, you have to be willing to, to go to a brother and say, hey, allow me to, to walk through this with you. It says, bear one another's burdens. Like, I see this in your life. Let me walk through this with you. Go ahead and flip to Psalm 51. Made a reference to this earlier. This is David, who has just been called out for his sin with Bathsheba, this woman that we mentioned earlier. Listen to his response. I'm going to read verse 1 through 12. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. This is a broken man desperate for God. Desperate for God to cleanse his heart. For God to give him a brand new heart, one that sees only him. But then listen to 13. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David gets it. He says, cleanse me, give me a new heart. I need you to totally change me. 
And then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. He knows that he can't do this until God has changed him. Until God has worked so deeply in his heart. But here you've seen David go from this hypocrite in 2 Samuel to someone so desperate for God and so desperate for someone, for God to change his heart. And I feel like this is the difference. Like the difference between judging another person seeing them as guilty before God, judging them for whatever sin is in their life. This is the difference between that and being so broken over your sin, so humbled, so allowing God to change your heart that you look at a brother or sister and say, hey, I want you to grow as well. I want, I want to lead you on. Here is, the, here is the Bible. Here is what God says. And be able to help another grow through that. I think what happens is that we forget unintentionally, how unchanging God is. How, so we, I talked about this scale and how our own scales change and um, depending on what sin we view as worse and stuff, but God's scale does not change. Like, it's the same. Our sin weighs the same no matter what our sin is. But here's what we forget. That, that I just, it's been kind of amazed by this like the last couple of days as I think about this. But on that same scale, on that scale of our sin, like we have absolutely zero hope of balancing that scale, of ever making it right, of ever having any sort of hope to make it right. But you see, like we, as born again, as being changed, as given new life, it's only then that our scale is balanced because of Jesus. Like it's only then that you can say, okay, we can have a relationship with God because God has provided the forgiveness through Jesus. It's only then. We don't, we don't get balance any other way. We don't ever have a chance for a relationship outside of Jesus being the only balance, being the only one who says, okay, you're no longer condemned because Jesus forgives. Like, you're still, still condemned, still the sinner, but Jesus is the one who makes it right. And that's what that's the point of this. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, no matter how guilty we are, the death of Jesus outweighs that. And I want us to look and say, look at how much God has saved us from. Look at the extent of our own sin. Look at our sin being absolutely no different from that brother, that sister. And then being humbled by God. This this Psalm 51 is a perfect, just perfect example of this, of, of David who sought out forgiveness for his sins, who's, who realized just the extent and then said, create in me a new heart and then I can teach transgressors your ways. Like, I hope that we can read this passage in that light. That we can read Matthew 7, 1 through 5 in the light of Jesus saved us. Jesus wants to do the same. That, that the other person's sin, no matter what it is, believer or non, that the same thing applies. Let's pray.